Well, we're still in our journey, um, discovering from the Word of God why we should assemble together in person. Is it really essential? I believe this is our fourth message on this subject. Is it essential to gather? Or is it like our, our government likes us to, to, to think that to assemble in person is non-essential, insignificant? To get together is why too secondary, irrelevant? Many, many churches have caved into this new false doctrine called virtual church. And they shut their doors to the faint-hearted believers. They turned the love of the brethren and reduced it down to only with words and tongues. Is it a hill to die on or is it not? Are our brethren in China and Afghanistan who are getting persecuted, some by being in prison and others getting killed because they're insisting to assemble in person under severe tyranny? Are they the foolish ones? Are they overcomplicating it, being too dogmatic about it? And are the Western churches who close down their doors are the wise ones. The biblical answer that we've seen so far is simple. To assemble is an imperative command. To get together in person according to the word of God is essential no matter what the government says. How else are the elders going to shepherd the flock? And how, how could um, the congregation submit to the elders? How can we love one another, encourage one another, unless we meet in person? Well, what about the command um, regarding the government? That it says, submit to the government. What do we do with this command? Well, last week we answered this question, I believe clearly, biblically. Brothers, gone are the days where our government was once the minister of God, a servant of the Most High God to do His will and to enforce His law. No, that they now share so much in common with many religions that, that you can't help but to conclude that our government is more like a false religion than it is a government. Let me prove it to you. Let me put that to test. Let's compare our government with Islam. Tell me, based on those um, um, things that I'm about to mention to you, are they describing Islam or are they describing our government? One, they set for themselves up rituals face covering, purification of the hands. Another, they have their own irrational, absurd laws apart from the laws of God. And anyone with half a brain would realize the foolishness of these laws. For example, in the last one that we heard is that one is not allowed to take off his mask while drinking alcohol. For whose safety? Well, for the safety of this poor guy who's now choking over his bottle of beer because he can't take off his mask? Or, or, or the invisible friends that he has that he's not allowed to hang out with because it's against the law? So for whose safety is it? And they impose it upon people to obey their ridiculous laws and they call upon people to trust them. Trust. Trust is the foundation of all false religions. Trust. 
trust us without using any kind of logical thinking behind it. And if anyone would challenge their ways, they are to be crushed. No, you keep your brain in your microwave or in your fridge somewhere, but don't you dare challenge what we say to you. And finally, they ban churches from opening up. Now, am I describing Islam or our government? And when you can't tell the difference between Islam and our government, be sure that there is something terribly wrong going on in our land. Imagine, brothers, sisters, that Islam would take over Australia and they close all churches. Would we submit to them and say, all right, we're not going to assemble and somehow think that we are pleasing God and that somehow we think that God's blessing will be effectual in our lives? Well, I've addressed this question last week. And if you want to find what the answer is, go ahead and download last week's sermon. Before this week, I do want to address two more objections. There will be more objections, um, Lord willing, the next week. But for this week, two objections. Let me give you just a short summary of these two objections. Number one, aren't we too legalistic about this? I mean, aren't we being too extreme, too dogmatic? That's one objection. Second objection. Why can't we obey God's commands in, in smaller group settings instead of the whole church together? Now, the biblical answer to these two questions is found in and because of that we are under the new covenant. That we're under the new covenant. And I want to take this opportunity while addressing these two objections, I want to do help you to understand the new covenant and the blessing of this new covenant. We need to grasp this beautiful covenant that we are under, that, that defines our relationship with our God. So what is this new covenant? What are the benefits of this new covenant that we have? Well, to that, uh, I want to ask you to turn to Hebrews 8. We'll read from verses 10 to 13. Hebrews 8 from verses 10 to 13. That will be kind of the main text for today. But again, um, as um, we continue in this series, we know we're not going through it verse by verse. So we're going to go and uh, have a look and cast our eyes in many passages in the scripture in order to address this question. But the main text uh, for today is Hebrews 8 from verses 10 to 13. Let's read the whole passage. <clears throat> for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. That's one of the benefits. Now we're going to go through the benefits of the new covenant that actually define what that covenant is. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And verse 18, when he said, a new covenant, so that's the new covenant. And these are the blessings of the new covenant so far. How the, the fact that God will write his laws into our minds, writes them into our hearts, that he will be our God. We will be his people and no one will need to teach uh, another saying, know the Lord or 
be intimate with the Lord or love the Lord. And furthermore, in verse 12, that he will be merciful to our iniquities, which means he will forgive our iniquities. That's why he says, I will remember their sins no more. These are wonderful benefits of the new covenant. Then he says, a new covenant he has made, the first obsolete. So he made the first covenant obsolete, which is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. We're not under the Mosaic covenant, we're under the new covenant. And the benefits of the new covenant, brothers and sisters, are mostly celebrated and enjoyed in our lives when we assemble together. Now, again, first objection. Let's expound on it a little bit more. Are we legalistic when we say that we'll obey God's commands even to the letter? I mean, a letter kills, does it not? I mean, these are tough, circum tough times that we're living in now. Why are we being too legalistic, too extreme? Don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. Nonsense. Why are we being too dogmatic about this? Well, we're committed to the highest degree of obedience to God's commands, not because we are legalistic, but because the new covenant that we're under calls us to obey to this highest degree. Why is that? I want to answer this question in two ways. The first is how the new covenant was ushered in. How? the process by which the new covenant was established compels us to obey God's commandments with the highest degree of obedience. So for that, I want to ask you to have a look. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Which I believe, from my mind, um, it's a, it's a quote from Luke 20 verse 22. So, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 25 and 26. It says, in the same way he took the cup, that's Jesus, also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup and you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice he connects the new covenant with his blood. It is at the end of Jesus' ministry when he instituted the new covenant. The new covenant came about because of Jesus Christ. Jesus declared that his body, his blood are offered freely on behalf of sinners. Jesus, our great shepherd, freely laid down his life for his sheep, even when we were lost sheep, stubborn, ignorant sheep enslaved to our own sin and under the dominion of Satan, bearing our own guilt upon our heads. That's what we were. And yet Jesus Christ, for him to establish the new covenant, what did he have to do? Jesus was made sin for us. And Jesus was cursed for us. And he died for the unjust, the just for the unjust. The innocent died on behalf of the guilty so that we, the ungodly ones, would be reconciled with God and that we would have forever peace with our God. This is the key that unlocked the iron gates of heaven. 
This is what ushered in the new covenant with all of its benefits and blessings. The Son of God willingly offered himself voluntarily bore our sin and guilt and he sacrificially died on our behalf and the scripture tells us that his death was a sweet smelling aroma as the shedding of his blood atoned for our sin propitiated the wrath toward us redeemed us from sin and death triumphantly conquered satan and his dominion, victoriously, Jesus crushed the power of sin that enslaved us. Now, brothers, not only should we consider what Christ did for us, but let us consider Christ himself in the light of what he did. Consider our most wonderful saviour when he was resolute to face this terrible, terrible suffering in order to bring us this new covenant. Brothers, should, should we blame Jesus by being too dogmatic, too extreme when he drank this dreadful cup? Would we say that Jesus was legalistic when his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. That put him into unspeakable agony to the point that we know from the scripture that his sweat became drops of blood. Listen to what the word of God says to how far Jesus was willing to obey the father. When he said to the father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Not yet, yet, not as I will, but as you will. Brothers, it wasn't legalism that motivated Christ to die for us. No, it wasn't. It was his amazing love for us. Jesus never in any way showed great demonstration of his amazing love for us, us, the guilty ones, the sinners, the enemies of God, then for him to obey his father to this point, to the point of death on the cross. Brothers, let's dig deep into Christ and see the extent of his love for us. The shame he suffered, the mocking, the spitting, his agony, the spilling of his blood to the ground. What torment he endured. What wrath he bore for us in order to bring us to the new covenant. How can we say that his obedience to the point of death, as the scripture says, even death on a cross was legalistic? And if it wasn't legalistic, but it was his love for us. What gratitude should fill our hearts, right? What thankfulness, what joy, what praise to his name because he loves us. And if this is true, brothers, sisters, is it a big thing to respond by loving our Savior through our obedience to His commands, even if we are in prison or fine. And, and if our love for the Savior, by obeying Him, even to the point of persecution, is, is shown by us assembling together, why would we be slandered or accused by being legalistic? People who would accuse us of being legalistic, they don't know the new covenant. They have no idea the cost behind bringing us into this new covenant. 
No, brothers, sisters, we ought to pray to Jesus and say to him, Lord, let our obedience to assemble be a token of our love to you. If you dedicated all yourself to us, how can we not dedicate all of ourselves to you? Not out of a legalistic attitude as to earn God's favor. No, that's been dealt with. We're under the new covenant. Now we offer you ourselves out of gratitude for you. For the eternal redemption that you accomplished for us. So that's one reason why we're not legalistic when we assemble. Why? Because of how the new covenant was ushered in. And the second reason is because of what the, the heart of the new covenant is. The very core of the new covenant compels us to assemble and yet not be legalistic about it. Let's go back to Hebrews 8 and verse 10. Let's read verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Number one, I will put my laws into their minds. Number two, I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, here, I will put my laws into their minds. What does that mean? This means our innermost thoughts are given to God's laws. He enlightened our understanding. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Unbelievers, to them, it is foolishness what we do. They do not understand. I was uh, uh, I had a phone call last night, and there was um, a relative of mine who uh, is an unbeliever, and for the life of him, he does not under he did not get why I would assemble. He just does not get it. But for us, believers, born again, God's law written in our mind. What does that mean? It means to obey God, to follow Christ, no matter the price we pay. Not only does it make sense to us, it makes sense to us. That's, of course, it's true, it's implied here. But read the next sentence. And I will write them. On their hearts. It makes sense to us. To follow Christ. Of course we follow Christ. We get that from the new covenant. How the fact that God wrote his laws. In our minds. But then he wrote it also in our hearts. This means our desire. Is to obey God's law. You don't cultivate that. You've got that. It's written in your heart. In the very depth of your soul. Is to obey God, to obey God's law. You desire that. You may have flesh that opposes that and lots of ruling pleasures. Yes, you may, but nevertheless, God wrote his law into the fabric of your hearts. It is not a burdensome. It's a light thing. It is delightful to follow Christ. Brothers, this is the miracle of the new birth where God would take away the heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh. This is, this is why the apostles in the first century, when they were scorched, when they were persecuted, they came out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. All of these wonderful desires are within our hearts. God wrote them in the heart of every believer that is under the new covenant. 
Let me put it in another way, right? We'll probably need to understand this. There are three uses of God's law, right? Three, not one, not two, three. There are three purposes that the law of God is used for. And let's not be confused between the three of them. The first use of God's law is to restrain evil. We spoke about this at length last week. The law has no power to change the heart of man. We know that, right? But it can, and it should be used to punish the criminals and to praise those that do right. It should be used that way. It should be used to protect the innocent from the criminals. That's the first use. That's the use in the government. When the government is meant to exercise their authority, it is within its jurisdiction. They are meant to enforce the law of God or even parents at home. When you discipline your son or daughter because they violated the law of God. That's the first use. The second use of the law of God is to bring us to Christ. To bring us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, it says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3.24. The law is meant to be used as a mirror. Now we look at ourselves through this mirror, through the law, and we would be convinced that our sin is exceedingly sinful. And then we realize that we are condemned by the law and that we are utterly hopeless to obey the law. Why? To what end? So that we would seek Christ for salvation and for strength. That's the second use of the law, to lead us to Christ. And the third use of the law, and that is in the context of the new covenant. This is what it means. I will write my laws, basically write them on their hearts. You see, Romans 8.1 says that, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are, if you are in Christ, if you are under the new covenant, you're not condemned. The law will never be able to condemn you. Why? For Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Again, the scripture tells us that Christians are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Why? Because Jesus offered perfect obedience to God on their behalf. He fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law on behalf of every believer. So you're not condemned any longer. No matter if you sin or you perform the greatest righteousness, your disposition before God is the same. Now, since this is true and it's guaranteed for eternity will always be true, how will God ensure that his people would obey his law without any threat of hell? When all believers, praise be to Christ, are no longer condemned. How will God ensure that we will most definitely follow him? Answer, he writes his laws in the very fabric of our hearts. And by so doing, he changes the appetite of our clinging, of our inclination. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
So to write his laws in our heart means our goals in life have changed. Our ambitions have radically been altered. By whom? Us? No. Who did the writing? God did. The sin of self-exaltation, self-preservation that we used to love, now we hate, we battle against it. We resist it. It's there in our flesh. But we hate it. We now love God's laws. Now get this. Jesus Christ. He is the sum and total of God's laws. Jesus then became the the lover of our soul. The pursuit of Christ. That we used to hate and it used to bore us to death has become the crown of our lives. And since Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body, therefore Christ is most visible where? In the assembly of the church. Under the new covenant. So we love to assemble. Because we love. To behold Christ. We love the law of God. We love it. How how is it that we love it? God wrote it in our hearts. And because Christ is the sum and total. Of the law of God. We want to behold Christ. And Christ is beheld. Most visibly. In the assembly of the church. We obey the commandments of God because we know that in the path of disobedience, we get to see Christ. Listen to the word of God. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father And I will love him and I will what? Disclose myself to him. Manifest myself to him. The one who loves me. And how do you know that you love him? When you keep his commandments. Brothers, to not obey Christ is to starve your soul. If you're a new, if you're a believer, if you're under the new covenant, but to obey Christ is to feed your soul. And a hungry man who eats food, you don't call him legalistic, do you? No. He eats food because his appetite aches for that food. So are those that are committed to obey God, even by assembly, under such circumstances, for Jesus' sake. So are we legalistic if we commit to assemble and obey God's commands down to the very letter? No. No, we're not. Why not? Because of what Jesus did in order to usher in a new covenant. Number two, because of the blessings of the new covenant, namely that God wrote his laws in our hearts. That's why we assemble. We're not just dogmatic, but like Steve Lawson says, sometimes we are bulldogmatic in this. To obey God's law to the highest degree. That's the first objection. The second objection goes like this. Well, all I heard so far sounds reasonable. I get it. It's, it's all good. But we kind of can apply these commands in small group settings, right? I mean, um, if I need to be shepherded by my elders, I just go visit one of them. 
I'll invite the faint-hearted to my house so I can encourage that faint-hearted. Or maybe perhaps we obey the love one another by just assembling together in a little groups, little pockets, and we love one another. And, and, and therefore, there is no point that we assemble together physically and make a big show out of it. The risk is too high. Well, so, so what do we do? What do we do? Well, let's obey God's commandments by visiting each other in person, just at a smaller scale. We, we don't need to assemble together, all of us as a church. Right? Let's go back to um, Hebrews 8, and we continue. We'll look at verse 11. And, and please note as we're reading verse 11, notice the inclusivity of the new covenant. The inclusivity of the new covenant. It says, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. They, everyone, all from the least to the greatest. What does that include? Who does that include? Everyone, right? What's the point here? The demonstration of the glory. Of, of the new covenant that Jesus ushered is always revealed in a community setting. Community. Yes, even though the new covenant is applied personally, of course, individually, individual people, their hearts have been transformed by the work of God in their lives. Absolutely. That's an individual and personal level. But God never intended for it to be in a private setting. That is not the new covenant. The new covenant, God intended for it to be celebrated collectively, to be lived out collectively. Everyone, it says. All, it says. And if you do a systematic study on the new covenant, you will find this, that in every reference to the new covenant, the emphasis is in the wholesome community, the entirety of the community togetherness, know the Lord. And the effect of the new covenant is mainly seen in the assembly, not in fragments of believers, no, but in the inclusivity of the whole group of believers together. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 says, In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It is about the togetherness, about the whole building. You see, the power of Christ and the supernatural joy of our Lord is manifested when the whole complete group of believers united collectively in one assembly. It's always been the case. Always. It's impossible for all believers that are under the new covenant in the entire world to assemble together. Yeah, absolutely. Most definitely true. Well, how did God plan for us to fulfill his intention of the new covenant? Well, that's the idea of the church comes in. The church as an institution, when was it birthed? It was birthed exactly when the new covenant was inaugurated. 
And every local church in and of itself is a complete wholesome entity that is to live out the new covenant together. Every local church is a well-defined community of believers that together they enjoy the power and the blessings of the new covenant. And they together would express the beauty and the glory of the new covenant. So Saving Grace Bible Church, for example, just like all other churches, Bible-believing churches, of course, that it's, it's independent, an entity on its own right, and it functions collectively as a whole where the new covenant is enjoyed, celebrated, and proclaimed. Can we back this up by Scripture? Absolutely. The, the assembly of the church together is clearly commanded in the Scripture. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling what? Together. It is not so much about just assembling fragments, but it's assembling of the church together. And what about the Lord's Supper in the passage that we just read earlier in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul was rebuking the Corinthians for the division that was taking place in the church. In that same chapter 11 where Paul says, because you come together, not for the better but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, he says. Verse 20, therefore when you meet what? Together. It is about the togetherness. In fact, not only does the scripture command us to assemble together, but it gives us the command of how we must worship God in this togetherness. He tells us, for example, in Ephesians 5.19, that when we gather together, it says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Or again, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1 and 2, Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Second verse. On the first day of every week, because I used to meet on Sunday every week, every Sunday, is to put aside and save as he may, uh, sorry, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Even from the first century. While persecution was at its maximum, they used to meet together as a church. And they all worshipped the Lord the same way. A church is not just a, a Bible study group or men's study or some discipleship somewhere in a corner. But the entire members of believers together, when they assemble for the preaching of the word, for the singing songs, for the corporate prayer, is where the glory of God is most clearly made visible. The edification of the saints is mostly received. Because the new covenant is meant to be expressed, lived out in the togetherness as a whole. Let me look at this from a different angle so you, you'll be tracking with me. We look at it from a different way so you understand what the scripture teaches about the new covenant. The Bible tells us that 
each and every local church with all of its members together is the bride of Christ, right? It, you as an individual, you are not the bride of Christ. I am not the bride of Christ. Me and you together as individuals, just one or two, are not the bride of Christ. It's the church. You see that in 2 Corinthians 11 too. You don't have to open it up because we need to move on. Well, let, let me, let me read it to you. For I am, so Paul here is talking to the church of Corinth. You, you can see that in the first chapter, right? To the church of Corinth, right? He says to the church of Corinth, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. That's a plural you, all of you, all the members, all the saints at church of Corinth. For I betroth you all to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a virgin, as a pure virgin. The whole local church is the bride of Christ, not individuals, but collectively. Again, every local church in and of itself as a whole is called the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ. Again, I am not, you know, myself, I am not the body of Christ. When the elders get together, they are not the body of Christ. Yes? And you cannot walk around and say, oh, look at me, I'm the body of Christ. You can't do that. When can we say that, yes, the body of Christ is here? When the church, as one entity, the whole church, is gathered, assembled. And there are other illustrations like uh, the family of God. You you're, and yourself, you're not the family of God. And there are many other illustrations, whether explicitly or implicitly in the scripture, that speak of the local church in and of itself. Now, each of these, each of these metaphors... Um, gives a different insight on the relationship between God and the church under this new covenant. Just different way of looking at the relationship between God and his collective group of believers. Be it the, the church being the bride of Christ, the temple of God or the body of Christ. Now, one thing all these metaphors have in common. You know one thing they all have in common? They all would break down. And we would smudge the image that God wants to portray if we fail to assemble together. I'll give you an example. Take, for example, the church is the bride of Christ. Now, as good as home fellowship is, it is not the body of Christ, unless all members, of course, gather at home. It really doesn't matter the location. We talk about the body, the people. As good as a Bible study group is, it is not the bride of Christ. And so if we all fellowship in smaller groups, but we don't assemble together. Do you know what we're doing? We are severing the relationship between a bride and her bridegroom. Brothers, the church with all of its wrinkles and with all of its ruins, with all of our full shorts and failures remain to be the beautiful bride of Christ. And Jesus rejoices over his church just like a young man that would rejoice over his new wedded wife. And we don't assemble weekly, brothers, because Sunday happened to be a holiday or because we've got nothing else to do. Well, we assemble weekly because Christ loves his bride, the church, so supremely. He cherishes her so immensely. 
He's so eager to meet his bride on his day, the Lord's day. Shall his bride deny her bridegroom of his rightful ownership over her? His desire to be with her? If not out of joyful delight, then the very least out of her loving duty. If Jesus' love for, for his bride led him to walk all the way to his cross, shall, shall his bride be reluctant to walk to the assembly for his sake? And what price that is too high to pay as not to obey God's command and assembly? What is it that is far more precious to us to hold back the bride from presenting her to Christ in order to behold his beauty. If Jesus never put any self-interest condition to delay his shedding of his blood for her, how could she put any condition to not see him even freely and cheerfully? Now, Whose responsibility is it to make sure that the bride, the church, beholds her bridegroom, beholds her saviour? Is it only the elders? Is it the elders and the music team? Whose responsibility? You want to know? Imagine this. Imagine if the elders decided to open a church, and then they say, okay, now the church is open, but the members do not come. Then what? So who's responsible? It's all of us. It's me. It's you. And you. And every member is responsible to ensure that the bride comes, assembles, to behold her saviour. We're in this together. And you know what? The same logic applies to the body of Christ metaphor or any other metaphor in the scripture. The same thing applies. Family of God. So to wrap it up, are we legalistic to me during this tough time? No. No, we're not being legalistic. We're being loving. We're being loving to our Savior. Can, can we meet on one-on-one or smaller group settings and yet have a clear conscience that we are obeying all of God's commands? Answer, no. No. The scripture does not allow us to think this way. The new covenant that has brought about the church, it has brought it about for a reason. The local church is not man's invention, brothers and sisters. It is established by God. And he commanded us to assemble and worship together. And we've looked at this biblically and logically. So, yes, fellowship at home as much as you like. Absolutely. Go ahead and drink encouragement and exhortation from your brothers at home to your heart is content. Do that. This is great. But in no way is this a replacement or a a substitute for the body of Christ to gather collectively. Well, there are more objections that we must address head on. Let me give you some of those objections that we will be discussing, Lord willing, next week. And perhaps, if not finished, maybe another another time. Um, one, are we being unloving to assemble as a church in person in the midst of pandemic? Because you know what, I, I might kill my grandma if I assemble. How do we respond to this? Um, a second question would be, well, what if we assemble and the mainstream media finds out? Wouldn't this bring bad reproach on 
Christ and Christianity as a whole? Because we're going to be all over the news. What does the Bible say about that? Another one? Well, okay, I'll, I'll assemble, but I'll only keep it to Sunday. Is that okay? We just want to see what the scripture says. I mean, how far is too far? How much is too much? We want to know what the scripture teaches about this. Last one. What about when my spouse is troubling me? My, my spouse is afraid and, and my spouse tells me not to assemble. What can I do? We want to see what the Bible says about this, right? A very, very important questions. They're very relevant. And we need to know what it looks like to glorify God, to pursue Christ in a lot of all of these. Well, for today, I just want to finish with a little reflection on the cost of ushering a new covenant. Let's go back and worship God in the light of the new covenant. The Son of God was scourged, spat upon, mocked, crushed by God the Father for His church. And by his death, he willingly delivered us. And then he called us to get together as his body and remember to remind one another of how much he loves us. Brothers, even if you meditate as who Christ is to us now, how he never meets his body's failure, the church's flaws with anger and brutality he never does that but yet he meets us with his patience and love with kindness and a and a bearing heart he is now our advocate our lawyer defends us he is our high priest who stands before us and for us Always loving, never condemning. Do we meditate on the sweetness of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Brothers, because we belong to the new covenant and because of who Christ is and what he does for us, being our advocate and high priest, we are never condemned. Our disposition before God, no matter what sin we commit, will never alter. We are blameless in the sight of God because of Jesus. Now, shall we take advantage of Jesus' kindness for the sake of what? Our self-preservation? Would we be glad that Jesus died poor and thirsty for us, yet not live for him joyfully and eagerly, even with whatever sacrifices we have to make? No, brothers. We lay down those sacrifices at Jesus' feet. We are going to speak to one another singing songs and making melody in our hearts for the Lord. And we say with Paul the Apostle, whatever losses we experience, we count them as gain for Jesus' sake. Here are our lungs, Lord. Take them, they're yours. Our health is yours, Jesus. And our wealth is yours. Our imprisonment is our glory. Our hard-pressed family life is our joy because we're doing it for you, Lord. Because in all of this, we find our rest and our delight in Christ exponentially multiplied. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, 
We don't know what the future holds for us, for this little flock. But we know the one who holds the future of this little flock and holds this little flock in his hands. We know you, God, that you are so loving, that your love will never change. Jesus' blood speaks of your love for us. You're faithful. You will never change. You're committed to us. And you will see us through this. Lord, would you put in the heart of your people to commit themselves to you, to let their obedience be unwavered because their desire to pursue Christ is unwavering. Help us, Lord, to focus upon your Son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to cry out like Paul the Apostle who said whether to live or die, that he will do anything for Jesus' sake. Let this be our direction of life. Let it be the reference point that we judge and decide everything based upon. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.